Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Wonder do the names of John Harper, Robert Cook, uh, Richard Rescorla, and the inhabitants of the village of Eam. Do they mean anything to you? Maybe if I threw in the name Captain Lawrence Oates, that might give you a clue as to a common theme that ties these individuals and this village together. John Harper uh, was a minister who was on the Titanic. And after getting his own little daughter into a life, uh, life raft, um, he then went around telling people about the gospel and urging them to put their trust in Christ. And being in the waters himself, the icy waters, and seeing a man who he asked, do you know Jesus as your Savior? And the man said, no. And the, the current pushed Harper away. Uh, and Harper shouts him, you need to put your trust in Jesus. And as the current pushed Harper back towards him, Harper took off, took off his life jacket and gave it to the man. And subsequently, that man did put his trust in Christ and was rescued as well, uh, whilst Harper wasn't. Robert Cook is a, a young skydiving instructor who, when the plane got into difficulty and was plummeting to the ground, strapped himself onto the person that was going to be jumping out of the plane with them and said, whatever happens, you stay on top. And as the plane hit the ground, he was killed, but the girl survived. He gave his life that she might live. Richard Rescorla uh, was the vice president of security at, um, one, at Morgan Stanley Banking, which had its headquarters in one of the Twin Towers. And he kept going in and in and in to the building to lead people to safety. And then he didn't come out. The village of Eam in 1665 realized that, I think it was a bundle of infected cloth had been brought to their village, bringing the black death to their village. And the clergyman talked to the people and said, we need to stay here. So this does not spread to the surrounding countryside. And so they all stayed put. And they gave their lives so the surrounding countryside would survive. And Captain Lawrence Oates was part of Scott's expedition to the Antarctic. And he left the tent and said, I'm going outside. and will be gone for some time. He gave his life so the others would have the opportunity to live. And we could multiply story after story after story. And there's something incredibly moving about people giving their lives so that others might live. And what we come to this morning is a verse that in the simplest of language sums up a most amazing truth. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. We thought about it some months ago at Robert and Chloe's baptism, but it's so relevant for the Lord's table, for communion, that I wanted to come back to it. We started looking at it in a little bit more detail on Wednesday evening. Uh, we, we saw really on Wednesday evening, we could put it, the great day of freedom. We're going to see this morning the great exchange. And then we're going to look uh, this evening at the great transformation. Um, 
So this morning we're thinking about the great exchange and, and the exchange that God the Son makes. We're thinking about this little phrase, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Now, children, that's a, a very simple phrase. And maybe today you could take on to, to write that out and maybe even write out the whole verse because it's a wonderful verse. And to write it out and to memorize it. And for the smaller ones, even memorizing that phrase, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's an astonishing truth. And although this phrase lies at the end of the verse, we need to understand it right at the heart of the verse so that we can understand what's being said here. Paul is writing uh, to a group of people in what today is central Turkey. And he, he had taken the good news of what Jesus had done to this part of the Roman Empire. And now, a year later, uh, he is writing to them. They had first of all accepted that news with joy. But now something has happened. And he has, he has heard about what has happened. And he's amazed. You can catch his amazement in chapter 1 and verse 6, where he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace or the, the gift or the generosity of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's astonished because they're turning away from this magnificent news. What he sums up here in the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And there's lots of complex argue, argument in this letter. But this verse has, in a sense, no complexity, although it is immensely profound. It's really simple, and we should think much on it. I want us to think, first of all, of the one who loves. The one who loves. The Son of God loved me. The Son of God loved me. Now, that phrase may not strike you as odd. You know, that's just a title for Jesus, isn't it? But it's not one that Paul used very much. He usually called Jesus Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus Christ. And only four times in his letters does he use this phrase. And only once in a speech in the book of Acts do we hear it from his lips. So why does he, why does he say this? Well, he's wanting us to see the incredible magnificence of the one who loves us and gives himself for us. You know, we, we're so used to the, the story. We think, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Yes, he was God. But stop for a moment. Paul wants us to stop and to think. The Son of God, he doesn't say Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. That would draw attention to the carpenter from Nazareth. He doesn't say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or even the Lord Jesus Christ because that would still, in a sense, put an element of his earthly humanity into the picture. Paul wants us to be lifting our eyes away from Nazareth, away from Jerusalem, solely heavenwards, and to see, to see something of what Isaiah saw, to see the majesty of this one, 
the Son of God. And that's what I want us to see this morning. We're, we're coming to be reminded of his, his humanity, His body broken, and His blood shed. But think, think of the One who took a body so that it could be broken, and that blood shed. He's God. He's, theologians use the word transcendent. That just means that he is so far above and beyond us that we can't begin to take it in. Um, He's as far, one writer says, above an archangel as he is above a caterpillar. You know, we tend to think that the archangels might just be a little bit below God. But no, God is so above and beyond and, and, and so outside of our understanding. He's the creator. Everything else that we think of is a creature. It's creation. We can't find a comparison to compare him to in terms of his transcendence. We like to think that God is just like us, except in capital letters. You know, he's us written in big letters. He's like us except bigger, but no, he is creator. And we are the creature, this son of God, immense in his majesty, far, far above and beyond us. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He doesn't need, as it were, to do things. He simply has to, as it were, think the thought, and it happens. He spoke the universe into existence. He is all-powerful, this Son of God. He is all-knowing. I've thought about that already this morning. This God, the Son, knows everything. This God is all-present. All of His being is present everywhere in every part of the universe. That's who he is. He is outside of time. He looks down over time the way you and I look down at this table and we see it spread out. He sees all of time and history spread out. He is unbounded by space. He is infinite. There are no limits to his being or to his characteristics. This is who this is. Theologians have a a term they use when they talk about God. They, They talk about aseity. Now that's a word we don't use. But it simply means that God doesn't need anything. He needs no one. He needs nothing. God wasn't lonely and so he made the world and made people to conquer his loneliness. That's not the case. God exists in glorious trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit each enjoying each other. They didn't need us. They didn't need to make this world. But they did. He is utterly independent. He is completely unchangeable. He is utterly pure, blazingly holy. His eyes are too pure as to look on sin, we're told. He is all-wise. He is abundantly good. He is overflowingly generous. This is God the Son. And we need to, we can't get our heads around it because he's transcendent and infinite. 
and we can't get our heads around our little tiny finite minds around the immensity of God, but we've got to, as it were, grab on to the, the edge of it a little bit and try and grasp that the edge just keeps going. <laughs> and the, we're like standing at the edge of an ocean that is God. And it goes and goes and goes and it goes that way as far as you can. It goes down as deep as you can go. And this God is blazing in his glory and his grandeur in his perfections. And perhaps Paul is thinking of Isaiah 6 and the angels covering their faces because he is so majestic. Perhaps he's thinking of Exodus 19 where God came down onto Mount Sinai and the whole mountain shook and was covered in smoke and the people were terrified. Maybe he's thinking of Isaiah 40 where it is where God does not come down but we are taken up into the heavens and we see God measuring out the heavens with the span of his hand. God holding all the oceans in the cup, the hollow of his hand. God seeing the nations the empires, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Persians, all of them, these mighty empires, and they're just like dust on the scales. That Son of God is who's being talked about here. That Son of God is the one that Paul is saying, loved me and gave himself for me. That God is the one we're thinking about here at this table. Maybe he had a glimpse of him like John had in Revelation 1. Now John had met Jesus, spent three years with him. John had enjoyed the moment of transfiguration. And he had seen it when the curtain was where pulled back. And Peter and James and John saw Jesus in something of his heavenly glory. John had seen that. John had seen the resurrected Jesus um, after he had come out of the tomb. And yet we read in Revelation 1, he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John saw and I think we would have to say, John saw, we might even have to put a, a toned down, muted version of the glory of God. As he looked at that vision and saw Jesus Christ, because he's seeing Jesus Christ as where in his, in his human form. As, as if, as it were, God is accommodating himself to our capacities 
and our limited abilities to take him in. And John sees even this and he is, falls at his feet as though dead. You know, I think if we could see the Son of God, we would be annihilated in amazement. If we could see him in his divinity, we would just be, to use a phrase that's common, blown away. But we would actually. Our, our, our being simply couldn't take it in. He is so glorious. This is the one who loves. This is why Paul, I believe, uses this title. Do you see what it means for him to love us? Him, him, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. All of his power is directed into this love. All of his knowing is directed into this love. All of his being everywhere present is directed into this love. All of his wisdom is directed into it. All of his goodness is directed into it. Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, I don't think, ever got over this truth. We come to the end of his life and he who had wanted to destroy Jesus' people because he couldn't get his hands on Jesus, says at the end of his life, or coming to the end of his life in 1 Timothy, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's just amazed that that being would care for him. And as we take... uh, the bread and the wine this morning, or as we look at the bread and the wine here, and as we hear the name Jesus, we've got to remember the stunning majesty of this God. The Son of God. The one who loves. Secondly, we want to see the one who has loved. The one who has loved. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And here is where there's an immense contrast. If we went up high into the heavens to grasp something of the Son of God, we have to descend into the depths to grasp something of the me. We are creatures. And He's the Creator. There is an infinite gap already between us and Him. But we are sinners. And so we are not just on the level of a slug. Because a slug, as it were, is simply being what God intended it to be. It doesn't shake its tiny sluggy fist at God and say, I'll do it my way. But we do. And we have accrued a colossal, as we thought on Wednesday evening, amount of guilt by our rebellion and our defiance of God. And we are further down. We we are in the pit of hell. We are rebels. We are deniers and defiers. And Paul knows something of that. And that increases his marvel all the more. The Son of God loved me. Me. He's writing this letter in about 47 AD. It's one of his first letters. Not the first, but one of his first letters. He's been a believer for 
14 years or so, thereabouts. But fresh in his memory, and it never became stale, is the memory. Because we read in his last letters, Paul's burden for those that he had left as widows and orphans. You see, Paul had been convinced that Jesus was a con man and a liar and a blasphemer. And so with all the certainty of a religious zealot, Paul had gone hunting Jesus' followers. He had been present when Stephen had been stoned to death. He had sought to make people blaspheme the name of Jesus, most likely by torture. Others had been harassed harassed and arrested and hunted and imprisoned. And he spends much of his time in his missionary journeys gathering funds for the widows and the orphans in Jerusalem. He had hated Christianity in a violent way. In 1 Timothy 1, just before that bit we read, where he's marveling at the king. Before he marvels at the king, he says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. That's who he was. That's who he was. And then he describes himself at the end of verse 16. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The worst. He had been a preacher of the gospel for years at this stage. And yet he could see himself for what he had been. And he's amazed because the next verse goes on to say, the king, the immortal, the invisible, the the almighty king. And he's, he's in the middle of these verses here. He revels. He says, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. That's what he can't get over. That that God whom he had rebelled against, that that God who he had hunted down that God's people and he had persecuted them, that that God would show him mercy. Imagine that day on the road to Damascus and he thinks he's doing God's will, hunting down these these heretical Christians. He thinks they're all a pack of liars and, and deceivers and he's hunting them down and with all his Jewish background, there's a great bright light shines from heaven And the voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul. And maybe he thought for a moment, God is going to speak and God is going to commend me. This is how God speaks the bright light from heaven. This is how God spoke in the Old Testament to to some of the, the great men of the Old Testament. And now God is speaking to Paul. Oh, how his hopes must have been lifted up. God is going to speak to me. Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And the utter horror that must have swept over his soul, that this, he he has acknowledged this is the Lord, but the the Lord has said, I'm Jesus. And that means Jesus is God and Saul is wrong and, and he's damned himself to hell a thousand times over. And what... What's going to happen to him? I was shown mercy. 
I was shown mercy, he says. You can hear the incredulity in Paul's voice as he, he says, the Son of God loved me. He loved me. There's something awe-inspiring about it. You know, in John 3, 16, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes that Christ loved the church. But those are all general, the world and the church. Our hearts would find a way to condemn us. We would want to make an exception for us as if God couldn't love us. Paul says, no, he loved me. He loved me. He showed mercy to me. We might feel we don't deserve his love. Not even the holiest, saintliest Christian deserves God's love. It's not possible to deserve it. It's, he doesn't need us. There's nothing we can do for him. He is God. We can't deserve anything from him. He is not in our debt ever. We don't deserve his love. But here Paul says, he loved me. He loved me. And as we come to the Lord's table, we can feel especially undeserving. Here's me with my failure this past week, this past month, these past years. Here's me with my doubts. Here's me with my fears. Here's me with my stumbling. Here's me with my guilt. Here's me and all my weakness. Oh yes, God might love other Christians, but me, me, I'm weak and shabby and poor and frail compared with them. They, they seem to be able to live properly. They seem to be able to trust. You look at yourself and you think, well, I'm not like them. We look at our sin and we always see our own sin more clearly than we see others. And we see our self-pity and our jealousy. Uh, we, we see our pride. We see our giving in to temptation. We see our thought life. And then we remember that this is the all-seeing God. He's God. And Paul comes and puts his arm round your shoulder and says, Ah, my friend, I was a devil and he loved me. I was a hater and he loved me. I was a butcher when he loved me first. And Paul drills it right down to the individual. And it's him, a man with blood in his hands, and he can say, the Son of God loved me. And if he can say it, then it doesn't matter what you've done. You can experience this love too. The one who is loved. As we come to the Lord's table, does the Lord Jesus Christ, never mind Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he puts his arm around our shoulders and he says, you've trusted in me. I love you. I've given myself for you. And we say, ah, but, 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 what about, what? He goes, no. I know all about it. I'm God. But you're holy. Yes, I'm holy, but we'll see. I've dealt with it. I've dealt with it. I love you. And I've given myself for you. That brings us to our third point. 
Love's gift. Love's gift. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. What does he mean? Someone was needed to live a life which delighted God. Man had failed. We had failed when Adam failed. And then each of us has failed ourselves thousands upon thousands of times over. Day after day we've failed. And the history of the world is one long history of failure. And who is going to live a life on our behalf that, that, that satisfies the requirements of God's perfect gaze? And God the Son says, Give me flesh, Father, and I'll go. And I'll do it. I'll do it for them. They can't do it. Give me flesh, and I shall go and live the life they can't live. He gave himself for us. Now, just think about this. Here is the transcendent God coming down onto this little planet to save little specks of dust who'd rebelled against him. Here is the unbounded God with no limit, the infinite God saying, bind me to time and space. Contract me down to this size here and put me in a womb. Bind me into a womb. Bind me to a location, Nazareth, Galilee, Judea. Bind me to living in this world. It's going to say, bind me to a cross. Bind me into a grave. The infinite, unbounded God. This is what it's going to be. And he who was holy is going to say, give me flesh. Give, give me a body so that I can go and bear their sins in my body to the tree. The all-holy one is going to give himself to take our unholiness on himself. The one who is over Satan, as it were, is going to put himself at the mercy, we might say, of Satan, to be tempted by Satan and harassed by Satan so that you and I could be free. He gives himself. The phrase could be translated, he gave up himself for me. He gave up himself. And think of this. God didn't need to do any of this. We add nothing to his being. But he chooses to do this. You add nothing to that. I add nothing to it. I bring nothing to the party that impresses or improves God. But I cost him. And yet he gave himself. And all those illustrations... John Harper and Richard Riscorla and the village of Eam and Robert Cook and Lawrence Oates and every other illustration fails monumentally because although those people, we say they gave their lives so that others might live, at one level they didn't give their lives. And as I said often before, all, all they did was to pick the time of their dying so that it would benefit others. They were going to die. And they picked the time of their dying to benefit others. But God the Son 
was never going to face death. God the Son gives Himself to death. He says, give me a body. Give me flesh and blood so that I can experience death, so that I can experience the punishment that defiance and disobedience deserve. Give me a body so I can do that for them. And He gave Himself for us. The Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. He gave Himself in the incarnation to live the life that you and I couldn't live. And He gave Himself at the cross to pay the price that we couldn't afford to pay. God the Son for, for me. He gave Himself for you. He gave Himself in Paul's place, in our place. That's why I would give this sermon the title The Great Exchange. It's great because of the greatness of the one who makes it. It's great because of the, the greatness of the need of the people He changes place with. It's great because of what He endures in the act of the exchange. And it's great because of the depth of the love that He shows in doing this. Where do we find a God like this? The Galatians wouldn't have found him in all the myths and all the gods of Greco-Roman Galatian culture. They were changeable and they were limited and they were finite. They were bound to particular localities and they would be as likely to lose their temper at you as to do anything for you. Those gods. But oh no, here's the true God and this is what he's like. And this sentence sums up the very heart of our faith. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I don't think Paul ever got over this realization. May we not get over it either. And for those of you who have put your trust in Christ, here's a simple sentence that you need to visit often. It kills Satan's accusations stone dead. It helps us with our sense of unworthiness. It equips us to fight temptation. It motivates us to live the Christian life. It gives us confidence in our salvation. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. What more is there in the universe that could be given? There is nothing more that could have been given. And if wherever to find salvation. It can only be in the Son of God who gives Himself for us. Here's confidence amidst trials too for the Christian. We're not sure that we can cope, but we can be confident that no matter what's going on around us, the Son of God loves us and has given Himself for us. And maybe this morning it's the phrase Son of God, that you need to focus on and to become lost in, to become amazed at the Son of God. Son of God. Or maybe it's loved me, loves me, gave himself for me. Don't forget that for me when you struggle with temptation. Don't forget the for me 
whenever accusations of unworthiness plague your conscience. Don't forget the for me when the pressures of work seem too much. Don't forget the for me when you feel like giving up. The Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. Don't forget the for me when you feel alone. Don't forget the for me when you're you're waiting for God to answer prayers and you're wondering, does he care? Does he hear? Hold on a minute. I don't know the answers to what he's going to do with my prayers, but I do know this. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. To anyone here who knows that they aren't ready to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, go to him and say, would you do that for me? Do that for me. Would you love me and give yourself for me? This is what lies at the heart of Christianity. This is what's pictured at the table this morning. Those of you who are taking part, you say to yourself, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Sometimes Satan, as it were, whispers in her ears and goes, you look at the state of yourself. Call yourself a Christian. You're a complete failure as a Christian. We say back to him, Son of God knows all of that because he's God. The Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. Amen. Let's, as we sit, bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, these are simple words of one syllable. It is no challenge even to ask our children to memorize them. And yet, they must be the deepest words of one syllable that have been strung together in the history of humanity. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And Lord, as we look at the table today and we see pictured for us here the Son of God taking on human form so that he could give himself in our place to be condemned instead of us, to go to hell instead of us, to face wrath instead of us. Lord, let us marvel at the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, we pray that whether we're taking part or whether we're watching, that we would be dumbfounded that we would be struck, that we would know ourselves that this is for me. And for those who we love and who know, or that we know and who we love, who don't know Christ as their Savior, Lord, today, let this be a day when they say, for me, for me, do it for me. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come uh, to the Lord's table, let me remind us of what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. That, that phrase, and when he had given thanks. See the Lord Jesus Christ as it were in eternity. 
saying, Father, give me a body and I'll go and live for them where they couldn't live the life that we require. I'll go and do it. And give me a body so that I can pay. And now he's saying, Father, he holds up the bread and he says, thank you. Thank you for a body that can be broken. Because God is spirit. He doesn't have a body that can be broken. And so the son says, give me a body that I can experience hell. That I can take the punishment. And now he says, thank you. Thank you for it. Even in that little phrase, when he had given thanks, we see the wonder of the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He gives thanks for the ability to go to hell, to experience the wrath of God. He gives thanks for it. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. There's that little phrase. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. And yet it's a solemn thing we do. Paul writes, Therefore, whoever drinks the, sorry, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And of course he would be. The Son of God took a body so that he could pay for the sins of his people and, and to take this lightly or to take it carelessly? What an offense against such a magnificent moment. A man, a woman, ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself, Paul says. So as we come to the Lord's table, it is both a solemn thing and a wonderful thing. Who may come to the Lord's table? Well, it is for those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have said publicly before the, the leaders, the elders in their church, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It may be that there are some here this morning who have put their trust in Jesus, but you haven't yet made public profession of your faith. I'm thinking perhaps some of our young people. Your faith we might know about it because we see it, but you haven't made public profession of it. And the time will come for that. And that's something to be looking forward to and praying about so that you too can come and join us at the Lord's table. It may be that there's some here this morning and you are, have put your faith in Christ, but you haven't spoken to myself or the elders here. And we don't know about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask you to, to watch this morning and before we come to the table next time to come and, and speak to us so that we can welcome you to the Lord's table 
as a brother or sister in Christ. It may be that you're here this morning and you haven't yet taken that step of asking Christ to be your Savior from sin and entrusting yourself to Him. Well, the bread and the wine are not for you, but Christ is. And take Christ. Take Him and say, do it for me. Go to Jesus as the bread and wine are being handed out. Don't reach for them, but in your heart reach for Christ and say, I need I need you to be my Savior. Maybe that you're a Christian who feels unworthy. Maybe the me looms large in your mind. I, I've, I've let the Son of God down. Well, let that phrase, the Son of God, love me and give himself for me, loom large in your mind and come to the table to be reminded that the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. Let's stand as we come uh, to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we read that in the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and he gave thanks And as we've thought already, we marvel that the Lord Jesus Christ in giving thanks is not just giving thanks for a piece of food, but he's giving thanks for having the the thing that the food represented, having a body, having flesh and blood, that he could go to the cross for his people. What sort of a God are you? What sort of a Savior is he? It's beyond our comprehension that we don't even grasp what it is to bear sin and its awfulness and the, the, the holy wrath that our sins deserve. But he knew exactly the awfulness of sin and he said, I give myself to bear it. And he knew the, the intensity and immensity of the judgment of God because he himself is God. And he gave himself to have that wrath poured out on him. And he said, I thank you for a body in which to do this. For my beloved, faltering, failed people. And Lord God, we thank you for this bread and this wine. And we pray that we would see past them as we take part to see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, having given thanks, the Lord Jesus took the bread and he broke it and said to his disciples, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you and ministering in his name. I take this bread and break it and give it to you, his disciples. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Two questions as we leave the Lord's table. As we've thought on the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Two questions come to mind. One, do I love him? Do I love him? 
Surely having been reminded of what he has done for us and the majesty of the one who has done this for us, we should be enabled to love him more. We think of Jesus sharing a meal with Peter and asking him, do you love me? So he shares a meal with us today and he says, I've given myself for you and I love you. Do we love him? And the second question, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Do I love him? And do I give myself for him? The Lord's table is a reminder to us of his 100% commitment. He held nothing back. And as we look at our lives and as we look at the table, we ought to hold nothing back and to give ourselves completely to him.